Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 29, and it's going to be another listener-generated episode. So uh, every now and then I'll do this. I still have a couple other ones out there that people have asked for that uh, require a little more work to put together. So I'm still working on a couple of those things, but um, this one I thought would be easy, so I'd knock it out. And I was going to avoid this topic because I think uh, everyone else has been talking about it recently, but... Uh, there were a few listeners who asked for me to talk about the Second Amendment. And so I thought, what could I add to the debate that's different? And because this podcast is particularly focused on historical subjects, I thought I would discuss the Second Amendment the way I did in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. So if you haven't picked up that book yet, I'd highly recommend it. It's written by yours truly, and so it's good. But uh, other than that, no, it is a a clause-by-clause examination of the Constitution, the original Constitution, from an originalist position. What did the founding generation say these clauses meant when the Constitution was going through ratification? So what we've done in the last 200 years, is, particularly in the last 100 years, is reduce the Constitution to a series of clauses. You know, this clause does this, this clause does this. So we don't really have the document as a whole, as it should be interpreted, Uh, And, of course, none of these decisions that focus on clauses ever go back to the ratification debates to discuss the meaning of these clauses. And the ratification debates are what James Madison said gave the Constitution its life and validity. So uh, we need to understand how the Constitution was sold to the states when it was ratified. And you can even do that with the amendments of the Constitution. So it's not just something that you can do with uh, the actual document itself. As the Constitution was amended, how did people argue these particular amendments would be applied by the general government or how they would be applied to the Constitution is also a very important discussion to have. Uh, And you can particularly do this with the 14th Amendment when we start talking about this issue of incorporation. So I'm going to talk about that slightly in this podcast because it's important with the Second Amendment. But I'm also going to discuss what that Second Amendment meant when it was added to the Constitution and what it was designed to do and how it's been perverted over the last particularly 50 years, really since the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. 
So, let's talk about the Second Amendment. If you don't know what the Second Amendment is, of course, it's often uh, considered to be the amendment that protects gun rights. Now, one thing you have to carefully avoid, and I know people have said this before, do not say you have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. You don't have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. You have a natural right, if, you want to just, if, if you're a firm believer in natural rights, to keep and bear arms. Now, there are people that argue there are no natural light, rights. All rights come from the body politic. You have rights in a uh, communal society or in a political community that the, that the political community is willing for you to have because rights can be stripped at any time. If you say you have a natural right, then by default what you're saying is that if someone tries to strip that right from me, then I have a right to force to keep that right. Now, when you start talking about this issue of keeping and bearing arms, there are some important definitions or some important historical antecedents to discuss here. Number one, if you look at colonial America and you look at British America uh, before, or I should say English America, you know, before 1702, you had English America, you didn't have British America, and you look at English history, the English were quite jealous of this ability to be armed. Uh, and this goes back longer than the colonies were here in North America. Uh, you can't find uh, this particular uh, power or right or liberty codified anywhere, really, uh, before um, you start looking at uh, English common law and how it was codified over time. But uh, when you take something like the Magna Charter, for example, and you start saying that the king is not above the law and can be compelled by force to obey the law, well, that force would imply that these people were armed, and they could do that. And so the right of, of arming an individual to resist acts of tyranny was something that was very jealously guarded by the English people and then later the British people. And so that's where you have this particular civil liberty becoming very important as we move forward in colonial history. Now, colonies like the Carolinas, when the Carolinas were first established, the proprietors of the Carolinas ensured that every man needed to be armed because they were forming a militia, and that militia was designed to protect the Carolinas from Indian attacks and also from incursions by the French and the Spanish. So it was essential for the people of the Carolinas to carry firearms, not just freemen, but also slaves. And it's very interesting as you go back in Carolina, uh, Carolina history, uh, you find that there are uh, documented, well-documented cases where slaves were out defending the Carolinas against foreign incursion. Uh, the Yemisee War, for example, the, Car the uh, slaves in, Carolina, in the Carolinas were heavily armed to protect the Carolinas from Indian attacks. So this was something that the English and British people, now at this point British people, considered to be very important. The Yemisee War was the early 18th century in, uh, in South Carolina. They considered it to be very important because it was important for security and self-defense. In this particular case, it's security against an invasion, but it's also self-defense. And as I get forward and I start talking about the Second Amendment, that, comes, that becomes clear as people are proposing amendments to the Constitution at the time. They spelled this out at times. Okay, so we have that. Then, of course, you get to the American War for Independence, and the British were disarming colonial citizens. 
Uh, now, at the time, they would say, of course, they're not colonial citizens anymore. They're not subjects of the king. They are now free and independent states. But they were being disarmed in British-occupied areas. And so they could not resist. So the militia was the first line of defense against the British. You, you didn't have uh, a regular army at the beginning of the American War for Independence. You had militia, armed citizens protecting their liberties. And, th and they said this over and over again. This is what we're doing. We're protecting our rights as Englishmen. So it wasn't just about taxes. For many, it was something deeper than that. Th their rights of, as Englishmen were being violated by a central authority that was well over a thousand miles away and had no control over the internal affairs of the colonies. In fact, that American War for Independence was very much a constitutional war, and that's something that I'm not going to discuss in this podcast. Maybe I'll do that later in discussing how this war was really a constitutional crisis more than anything else and uh, the way they viewed powers, the powers of the individual colonies vis-a-vis -vis the powers of the central authority and parliament in London. All right, so they're being disarmed. Uh, and, you know, without the militias, uh, the war goes very badly, particularly in the South. There was no regular army to speak of in the Southern theater uh, after really um, the fall of Charleston in 1780. Uh, you didn't have uh, any lasting opposition from a regular army. It was basically surrendered at Charleston. Uh, so you had to have militia, people like uh, Andrew Pickens and uh, Francis Marion and Sumter. Uh, you had to have people like that in South Carolina resisting the central authority. And, of course, one of the most famous battles in the American War for Independence in the Southern Theater was the Battle of Kings Mountain, which was militia. These were mountain men who came out of the mountain and beat the regular British army. Uh, these guys were heavily armed because uh, that's what they had to do in their daily life to protect themselves, and to provide for their families. So firearms were essential, and personal ownership of firearms were essential in the 1770s and 1780s in resisting the central authority, meaning the British Army, during the American War for Independence. So the war's over, and uh, now we have, uh, we've had a governing document for the United States, the Articles of Confederation, and there's discussion about changing that document maybe altering it, making it stronger. But one thing that was clear as we get to the Constitution, uh, that the nature of the Union was not going to change. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Constitution did not alter the nature of the Union. And they were clear about this in the ratification debates. We had a Union of States in uh, 1776 to 1787, 88, actually 1788, we had a union of states that was operating under a Articles of Confederation. The Constitution kept that union intact. They just said it was more perfect. A more perfect union. A union, a union of what? A union of states. And so they gave the government, they granted, as Article 1 says, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a con Congress of the United States, so that the states granted the central authority powers enumerated powers, powers that were spelled out in the document. Now, one of the uh, ways that the proponents of the Constitution sold the document was that the general government could not violate uh, the document. They could not violate the powers that were in there. In other words, they couldn't go beyond the enumerated powers. If they did, those powers were null and void because 
they were not enumerated. And this was, this was discussed over and over again. I mean, Roger Sherman, one of my favorite quotes, uh, he said, look, if the general government violates the Constitution, the states will be powerful enough to check it. He said, not the federal courts, but the states would be powerful enough to check it. And so uh, this is another issue, um, another you know, nullification, state or to position, you know, how does this work? <clears throat> Some people will say this is completely un- that's unconstitutional. I actually saw a moron the other day on a on a social media saying that oh you know uh, the uh, the, cons- the the Supreme Court declared nullification unconstitutional and uh, after South Carolina nullified the the tariff in 1832 they did nothing of the kind but this guy he said I I was a history major as an undergraduate and in grad school oh great well you didn't learn anything like most people who are in grad school they don't learn anything as history majors so. Um, just because you majored in history doesn't mean you know anything. All right, so uh, so we have this issue. You know, we have enumerated powers, and you cannot go beyond those powers. But there is a fear that would happen, which is why you get the Bill of Rights. In fact, the preamble to the Bill of Rights spells this out. These are restricting clauses on the general government to uh, deny misconstruction, meaning that the the powers are not going to be implied. So that was very important. They were trying to check implied powers, which, of course, Alexander Hamilton made famous in his defense of the First Bank of the United States in 1791. So there are not going to be implied powers because the Bill of Rights restricts the potential for abuse of the Constitution by the general government, not by the states, by the general government. These these amendments were to apply only to the general government not to the states. So this is where incorporation becomes important in the 14th Amendment. People will say, well, okay, that was the case with the original Bill of Rights, but the 14th Amendment changed all that. Don't you know, idiot? Because the 14th Amendment incorporated the Bill of Rights into the, con- into the uh, state constitutions. That's exactly what it was intended to do. Well, that's a false premise. Uh, if you read the ratification debates of the 14th Amendment, when the amendment was proposed in the Congress, They said nothing of the kind. In fact, they argued against that when the amendment was being uh, discussed and debated during uh, its proposal in the Congress. And if you don't believe that, well, I mean, just take the issue of segregation. Oftentimes, the 14th Amendment has been used to knock down segregation. Now, I'm not advocating segregation, but uh, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, segregation uh, still existed in Washington, D.C., of the public schools there. So if they intended this amendment to do anything, to incorporate anything, then you would have applied it to the areas the federal government could completely control, and that would have been the District of Columbia. Okay, so uh, this was not intended to do anything but ensure that black Americans could serve on juries and own property. It was not never intended to apply the Bill of Rights to the states. In fact, if, it, if that had been the case, I don't think it could have made it out of Congress. Northern states didn't want that either. And, and uh, if, if any Northerners in 1791 believed that the Bill of Rights would apply to the states, they wouldn't have ratified it because there were still three states in the North that had state-established churches. And, of course, if you say, well, the Bill of Rights made freedom of speech uh, and freedom of religion. I mean, these things were had to be applied to the states. Well, if that was the case, then these three states would not have been allowed to have a state church. But they did, 
and they continued to do so long after the Bill of Rights were ratified. So this idea of incorporation is a faulty doctrine. We shouldn't believe in it, and we shouldn't advocate it. Now, of course, what's happened is the Second Amendment now, through the Supreme Court, only in the last few years, has been uh, incorporated into the state constitutions. I often argue that your first line of defense in this particular issue, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, is, is protected best by your states. Now, there are some states like Iowa that don't have this civil liberty codified in its constitution. So the people of Iowa should get to work to add a constitutional amendment protecting the right to keep and bear arms in the Iowa state constitution. But I know in my home state, uh, it's expressly spelled out in the constitution what, what rights and liberties you have. They're protected by the state constitution as well, and that's your first line of defense. Because essentially what, what the case was, I mean, after the, after the Second Amendment was ratified, the states could still regulate firearms, and they did. In fact, in Pennsylvania, firearm, uh, firearms were heavily regulated. But they could not prohibit, the general government could not prohibit you from owning a firearm. So how does this work? All right, so what is the Second Amendment there to do? So if you have my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, you can go to page 190 where I discuss this issue. And essentially what the Bill of Rights is doing, in particular the Second Amendment and the Third Amendment, you have to kind of continue consider these two amendments together. The Third Amendment being that you know, no soldier shall be quartered in anyone's house during peacetime without consent of the owner, okay? uh, nor in any time of war but to be prescribed by law. So, I mean, in a time of war, you can be forced to quarter soldiers, but not in a time of peace. Uh, and uh, so that's very important. Now, why was this added to the Constitution? Because in Article One, Section 8, the general government is allowed to arm the militia. And if you, have, if you imply a power, then you could say, well, if they're allowed to arm the militia, then they can disarm the militia. In fact, the first Militia Act required, after the Constitution was ratified, required citizens of the states to own a firearm and a certain amount of powder and ammunition. The general government was arming the militia, but they cannot disarm the militia. In other words, take away the ability of an individual to possess a firearm, and firearms are firearms. Okay, Now, I know people will say, well, the founding generation never thought that— uh, this is this is history guy talking here, you know, that majored in history in grad school and uh, undergraduate. Well, the federal government never thought that they never saw assault weapons. They never saw those coming. So you can't use that argument because they couldn't see that we'd have s semi-automatic, as all the libs will say, though. They couldn't see that we would have fully automatic weapons like AR-15s that make me cry. They make me cry when I shoot them. They give me, they give me post-traumatic stress disorder. It's disorienting. I don't like it. They never, they never, they never saw that coming. So you can't say that you know musket, which is a muzzle-loaded weapon, if they even know how it's loaded. These these idiots. That muzzle-loaded single-shot weapon, uh, that's not that's not the same as assault rifle. So they never would have agreed to this. Not true. Uh, a firearm was a firearm. Uh, there were different types of firearms in the 18th century even. You had smaller uh, pistols. You had larger pistols. 
You had, uh, by the uh, eight, late 18th century, you're seeing rifled weapons. Now, they weren't uh, common, but you were starting to see them. And, of course, uh, you know, you could own a cannon. And the thing is, what's really interesting, that was the case in the United States all the way up until 1963. And what happens in 1963? Well, of course, John F. Kennedy is assassinated, and so the federal government passes its first round of firearms regulation in American history. I mean, before 1963, you could look at uh, firearms magazines, and you could buy a howitzer if you wanted to. Uh, Government surplus, buy a howitzer. Uh, And there was no regulation on that. You could own, you know, the Thompson machine gun, uh, which was... um, Oh, very popular, created in 1917 for, for use during World War One. It got in uh, into the war a little bit late, but it was used quite extensively in World War II. But, you, I mean, they were selling these things in magazines for a rancher so they could shoot wolves on their property, right? Get yourself a Thompson and go out there and mow down your wolves. So, um, you know, firearms were, you could get anything you wanted up until 1963. Now, and then that's when you start seeing federal gun control legislation. And because, uh, you know, Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald supposedly bought his purchases rifle uh, over uh, a mail-order catalog, which, of course, later was used uh, to shoot John F. Kennedy in the head. Now, that's if you don't believe in all the conspiracy theories. But that's the the standard tale. Okay, so, so you have the idea that the Second Amendment is there to protect people from being disarmed by the general government. And when you look at the first proposals that started coming in for a Second Amendment, uh, and you read those proposals, you'll see that that's, that's entirely the case. So both North Carolina and Virginia proposed, quote, the people have a right to keep and bear arms that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained in arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies in, t- in a time of peace are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided. So the point of the Second Amendment to Virginia and North Carolina was clear. It's so that people were fully armed to prevent a standing army because they didn't want a standing army. They didn't, want, they didn't think that your liberties were protected by a professional soldier class, uh, that you had to protect those yourself. And so they would have been armed with the weapons of the day, which were the assault rifles of the day. They would have been armed with those. And, in fact, the general government required that through the Militia Act. Uh, Pennsylvania's proposal read, quote, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and their own state or the United States. So this idea of the security of a free state, what they're talking about there is just the, the general government. That's what, No, Pennsylvania made it clear it was their state or the United States and themselves. You had a right to keep and bear arms for yourself or for the purpose of killing game, and no law shall be passed for disarming the people or any of them unless for crimes committed or real danger of public injury from individuals. Now, uh, so they said the Pennsylvania proposal had an out there that would say that if there's a danger from individuals, then you can uh, disarm the people. But that part of the amendment was not added, right? So they had the first part, but that last part wasn't even considered. Uh, New York, Mellington Smith, uh, during the New York Ratifying Convention, proposed this, that the general government's powers to organize, arm, and discipline the militia shall not be construed to extend further than to prescribe the mode of arming and disciplining the same. 
the mode of arming and disciplining the same. So in other words, they can't disarm you. Uh, and of course, this idea of the militia, what is that? It's all men who are capable of bearing arms. This is what they said over and over again. So the militia was every man, 18 to 45 or even older, who could bear arms and defend the state or the United States from foreign incursion. Now, when the amendment was proposed and debated in the House in 1789, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts said, this is the intent, quote, What, sir, is the use of a militia? It is to prevent the establishment of a standing army, the bane of liberty. Whenever governments mean to invade the rights and liberties of the people, they always attempt to destroy the militia in order to raise an army upon their ruins. So he's saying, I mean, this is often said, well... The, the, the amendment's not there to defend against the government. That's what a crazy, radical right-wingers come up with. Well, there it's Elbridge Gary spelling it out. No, it's there to prevent tyranny from a standing army or from the central authority, the exact thing the founding generation went through during the American War for Independence. Gary makes it very clear. Now, the only thing they really debated was a conscientious objector clause. Um, should people be able to say, I don't want to be part of the militia? And that was, that was rejected. So there was not going to be any conscientious objector clause. Now, several states also proposed amendments that would have, that would have uh, prohibited a standing army which is interesting. Now, that was rejected. It never made it past Madison. You know, Madison was the gatekeeper of all these amendments coming to the general government from the states. There were hundreds of them. Uh, Madison um, rejected that. But as I say uh, in, in, in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, that did not mean that the founding generation indiscriminately approved of a standing army. Madison, in fact, said the militia was the best security against a standing army. And with the Second and Third Amendments, most men of the founding generation believed that the right of people to resist tyrannical government was secure. So the Second Amendment, contrary to what the left likes to say, is not there to ensure that we have a National Guard. No, it's to ensure that people can defend themselves and their state, not the United States, but and their state against federal tyranny or against invasion from another people. That's why it's there. It has nothing to do. I mean, you have a natural right to self-defense. Blackstone makes this very clear. If you want to read Blackstone's um, commentaries on English law, he points this out. Firearm possession is important for your self-defense, for personal liberty. That's why you should be armed. It is a natural right to do so. It's a natural right to self-defense. You have a natural right to defend yourself. And again, people will say, well, sure, you can own a... a uh, six-shot pistol or something of that nature. But um, the fact is, the founding generation considered this to be a natural right of self-defense. So this is, my, uh, this is my spiel on the Second Amendment. It's uh, spelled out quite clearly in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. I wasn't going to do this issue, but I thought it was important to outline the original understanding of the Second Amendment, why it was there, give you a little history lesson of why it was put into the, into the Constitution or ratified into the Constitution in the Bill of Rights, what the Bill of Rights meant, briefly touch on this issue of incorporation. You know, if it wasn't for incorporation, the states could regulate firearms. 
and they did. And states still can. Uh, the problem is we have incorporation. It's a problem not only for uh, you know people who are wanting you know, the gun rights people or anti-gun rights people. I mean, look, think locally, act locally. If we did that, then if you wanted to have your uh, disarmed utopia in California, you could have it, or Massachusetts, or wherever you want. I mean, you could have that if you wanted to. In fact, Connecticut has very strict gun laws, and we saw what happened in Connecticut. I mean, horrible situation. But you know, gun laws don't pr- don't pro- uh, prohibit the crazy people from doing things. They just permit uh, prevent the well-intending people, the good people, the good guys, to defend themselves. Uh, and so, um, th- this is the case. Uh, you know, you can um, you can look at uh, any 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 of these uh, particular issues, and and the states, whether it was speech, religion, press, uh, the freedom of these things, all these things could be circumscribed by the states. And this was argued over and over again in the founding generation. The Bill of Rights only applied to the general government. So, uh, according to the Second Amendment, the general government has no authority at all to uh, disarm anyone. Uh, they can uh, arm the militia, but they can't disarm the militia. All right. Well, I will see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.